Uh, we will open it now for a panel discussion and for questions from the audience. And I know some of the questions are coming here through, through the app already. Um, uh, so, Dr. Hillengas, questions regarding insurance coverage for the PET scan and the MRI, and, and uh, but you're very persuasive with radiologists, yeah. so how do you do that? Yeah, so we actually have updated the NCCN guidelines, we have updated the International Myeloma Working Group guidelines. This is basically the, the basis for the low CT. Again, CT, CPT code, we're working on that. We have a lot of really good support from both from hematologists and uh, radiologists. We are not there yet. I usually quote the, the uh, guidelines, and most of the time the peer-to-peer really takes care of it. Sometimes, surprisingly enough, the insurance will pay for a PET-CT, and they pay for a PET-CT at first diagnosis and after treatment. So for MRD assessment, we will get a PET-CT because there is this code for that. Uh, for the low-dose CT, uh, which is a bit cheaper and le- less um, troublesome for the patients, for the CT, we are working on the CPT code. MRI is more challenging. It's most of the time, if it's not clear in CT and you need an MRI, then you would do an MRI. And my experience, again, with the, with the new guidelines, and if you do a peer-to-peer, usually you can convince the insurance. Not always, um, but you can. Dr. Nisvisky. Techniques. Yeah. So my my dream would be to do a PET CT once a year, but I think that's not really uh, doable. We, in our experience, since we have the higher sensitivity of those techniques, we do it after, for example, high dose or after the intensive part, or where when we think, okay, now the patient is in really deep remission and it's relevant. And I have to say, in my experience, it's very, very rarely that you need the yearly follow-up. The yearly follow-up was important in our skeletal area, skeletal uh, x-ray area, where we just had a low sensitivity. With this high sensitivity, I usually only do it after intensive treatment and then at the relapse or when the serological markers go up. Because, as you know, of course, there are these oligosecretory, non-secretory relapses, but they are very rare, and I hope that other techniques might might also help with that. So how do you kind of cope with um, sort of macrofocal relapse where you, you don't have residual disease and you have focal lesions on, on the skeleton and you will only see them with diffusion-weighted MRI or PET-CT? Yeah, that, that's challenging, and, of course, I would like to do it more often. And um, what we have a trick, and I'm not sure if I can say that in public, but our uh, argument to, to do another PET-CT after in a patient in CR on land maintenance, for example, um, in those patients, I say after two to three years, okay, now I look for second primary malignancies. So I get an approval for the PET-CT to look for second primary malignancies. <laughs> And by accident, I also can look at the skeleton. I can also look at the soft tissue tumor. So don't tell anyone and don't Twitter that, but that's basically what we do. I mean, sometimes we have to beat the system. Off the record. It's all recorded. I have an additional question for Gareth. So, Gareth, we all have been uh, very frustrated by obtaining uh, uh, molecular analysis of... Uh, a patient in relapse uh, or refractory disease, we cannot find a, a, a actionable mutation, or if we do, it's at a very low percentage, and then uh, we don't have an actionable drug. So with, with these uh, uh, pro- problems, um, how would you see the future of the approaches of 
my drug in which we identify some mutations but not the majority and we add it to standard therapy. Uh, and I would propose that maybe instead of that approach, you would just use it in the MRD situation when you have already used the standard uh, triplet or quadruplet and then add the uh, uh, mutational uh, uh, analysis and, and use those uh, drugs then. So you, you, you make a, a great point, and I, I think the, the message from this whole kind of symposium was that there's more ways of doing this than simply the black and white where you, you look up front. Like my kind of favoured view for the future is that myeloma will change into this chronic disease that you manage by having them come back to the clinic. You look in the peripheral blood, you measure a spectrum of mutations, and then you modulate the level of each of those individual kind of subclones and then control the disease long term. So whether that's realistic at this stage, um, probably not, which is why I didn't go into it, but I, I think the future's not going to look the same as we are now, where we just choose one drug blindly and then leave people on. It's going to be risk-adapted, response-adapted, and molecular subclone-adapted, and, and that, I think, is a pretty good, good view for the future. Excellent. Question from the floor. Yes, uh, I'm a, a pathologist. Uh, question for uh, Dr. Dispensieri. Uh, Roughly two-thirds of the myeloma testing in, in clinical lab is uh, pretreatment, looking for MGUS or uh, smoldering. <clears throat> if we were to use mass spec in those patients, we would find many, many small bands which have no clinical significance, or at least are you, are you going to create something similar to the IFE MGUS that Mayo co uh, coined, where it's, it's mass, mass fix MGUS and I think in that study, only 14 patients went on to have myeloma that only found, were found on IFE. So have you looked at the 16 or 17,000 samples Dr. Kyle has stored to say not, not once you know they have myeloma, but screening people who don't have or not right, known to have myeloma by mass spec? Because I'm worried that it will deluge the clinical, clinical information with many, many small bands, yep. and it's hard to know how how to deal with those. Right. You're, you're totally correct. Um, so it gets down, yes, there would be more MGUS, and we have actually done that. That paper's been submitted um, looking at screening the Olmstead, uh, and you definitely are picking up um, another probably 10% um, MGUS patients, 10 to 15% of known. So what's really interesting is we did it two ways. One is looking at patients who had a baseline sample and eventually went on to develop a bona fide MGUS, but they were negative at the beginning, and we picked up like a large percent of those showing sensitivity. But your concern is real that, you know, yeah, you just see these positives. Now, we do know that even when you're looking at just immunofixation MGUSs, if patients don't have any, first of all, why'd you do the test in the first place, right? So there was a pre-test probability, there was some question. Um, but if they don't have anything at that time, we know that patients who have normal free light chain ratios, that patients who are isotype IgG, um, you know, they're 20% 
and small M spikes or non-existent, their you know, 20-year risk of developing myeloma-related disorders is about 5%, and you could argue there's no point in screening. You need the history to make sure that you didn't catch something, but um, it, it certainly is a worry, but I think with good common sense and, and the knowledge of, gee, if you have one of these, if there's really nothing for myeloma-related diseases, you don't have to do a bone marrow. You don't have to do you know, PET scans and, and whatnot. So I think it just takes a little bit of thought. Um, so I, I don't think it will be a problem if used correctly. So can I ask a question? So one of the, the real challenges in managing myeloma is reducing the time from um, first symptom to diagnosis and intervention. And so I'm kind of interested in how your question interacts with that. Because if you know somebody has uh, an M spike and they have back pain and some myeloma kind of act, event, does that help you make the the diagnosis early on? Um, It could. I mean, that gets to the question, do you do universal screening or not? And I I think at this point we're not there yet. I think we'll know more from, you know, the Iceland study and so forth about how valuable screening is. But again, if you look at somebody with connective tissue disease or something, you're going to see just by immunofixation all these little tiny bands, and you have to kind of have the knowledge. And in general, in the lab, we do undercall it a little bit. If there are multiple bands, we're not going to say this is a triclonal or whatever, and it's a de novo, because you know that all kinds of different immune phenomena can cause that. And, and that's no different, in a way, as to what has to happen now, even with IFE or immunofixation. So, follow question. Since Mayo um, Labs is currently offering this in the, in the initial screening algorithm, you don't separate SPAP from mass spec. Uh, I assume anything sent in is screened by mass spec in addition to SPAP. So currently... You, will you be publishing... Comparison to show the frequency at which they find these small bands that yeah and we've so that yeah the, um, Dave is writing our own experience so right now because of uh, CMS coding and so forth um, things that are ma- mailed in through Mayo Med Labs unless the test is specifically asked for we are still doing the immunofixation um, when the coding is there then it, you know we'll do it we'll we'll get rid of immunofixation completely um, but Dave uh, we have over like I think ten thousand patients and so. So he's really writing that paper now, Dave Murray, about you know what are we actually seeing in real life because we have over a year of experience in the real world. Thank you. Let's Thank take you. one more question from the back quickly, and then we'll go to IRS questions. Dr. Mikhail. Thanks, Rafael. Very just very quickly, just to add to what what you said, Angela. You know, and I know you made reference to it. You know, we now have about sixty thousand samples from the Iceland study. And, of course, we're doing all of these on uh, all this testing on each of them, the mass spec as well as, you know, the, the traditional testing. And we're already starting to see certain patterns. So, you know, Gareth, your question is, you know, very important clinically. You know, are we just getting a lot of background noise that we're not going to use? And we're trying to characterize it. But we're already starting to find patterns that we would not have expected, including the age phenomenon, right? We typically think of MGUS as being a, a disease where people have it, in their older years. So when we started screening in Iceland, we started our screening program at, at age 40 and above. Well, now looking at the patterns of MGUS within that community, we recognize that actually we probably started a little bit too late. So we're now going back to, to screen a group of patients from 19 to 39, 
it's quite likely that we develop MGUS in our 20s. Now, I don't know what you're doing in your 20s, what antigenic stimulation you had in your 20s and 30s, but but that's, that's you know, a a possible, you know, point to try and help us understand this very bit, what's clinically significant and what's not. But but to not do it, I think, is the, is, is the error here, right? I mean, the alpha-beta error here, there's a lot more at stake of, of ignoring these potentially lethal MGUSs as opposed to, you know, trying to understand that background noise. So it'll be interesting to compare, you know, what, what, what Dave is doing there at Mayo, Angela, and, and the Iceland group. So a screening group versus a, if you will, reason-to-test group to see if there's a d- discrimination between the two to help us understand what really is a significant MGUS and what's an insignificant MGUS. Thank you.